I am camped out in that third category of the emotions of the experience. I get a lot of messages from other dads who have jobs and have kids and have families. I, I sense in their writing to me that they're almost saying like, thank you for like giving me permission to care about something that is totally superfluous, but matters to me. And that fuels my passion for the rest of life because I just get the sense when, and they lay it out, like they have jobs, they have kids, they have a lot of constraints and responsibilities. Maybe they were searching for something to like keep them fired up and just keep them happy about the day. And they read my writing and they're like, wait, like this guy's not talking about splits and he's not talking about workouts too much, but he seems to be saying that it's okay to really, really, really care about something that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but it matters because life is just a journey. That's Peter Bromka. And this is episode 92 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week's guest is Peter Bromka. Bromka, who I've known since our college days, competing against one another in New England, just ran 219.02 at CIM a couple weeks back to miss the Olympic trials qualifying mark by an agonizing two seconds. We talked about that race in this conversation amongst a whole host of other topics, and I think you'll find this one to be equal parts inspiring, insightful, and at times emotional. He's a 38-year-old dad and husband who lives in Portland, Oregon. He works full-time, and he has come a long way in the past five years to get where he is today. Okay, let's dive right in with marathoner and writer Peter Bromka. All right, Peter Bromka. Hi. We've chatted many a time in the past. I've known you since our college days running in New England, but it's a pleasure to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when we got reconnected uh, a couple of years ago, um, I remembered you as just like the guy who used to rip the mile uh, at the Tufts University indoor track. Um, I was like, oh yeah, Mario, I haven't done sort of interacted with him in years. Um, and then our worlds have crossed a lot more in the last couple of years. Um, yeah. But yeah, th those are good times. It's pretty wild how it's kind of come to that. Because when I first heard your name again a few years ago, I was like, Bronca, Bronca, I remember running against that guy. And I thought Tufts, and I'm like, wait, he was at Trinity at some point. Is that is that true or am I making that up? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I'm from Oregon and I got really interested in like going to a small school and then NESCAC schools seem to have awesome sports and straight up I didn't get into Tufts um, and I was able to fortunate to get into Trinity and went there. Um, so you did run in Trinity. Okay. I wasn't I imagining that. Yeah. Um, I ran there for a year and talk about the indoor track. They brought me up to Tufts for a um, indoor track meet in February and I was like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Like this is super beautiful and this is everything I wanted in the university experience. So then I applied to transfer and I was fortunate to get in. And that had to be what, like 2000, 2001, somewhere around that time? 2001 to 2000. It was 2000 to 2001. Yeah. Man, oh man. <laughs> Here we are 18 <laughs> years later, two guys in their late <laughs> 30s uh, going back to the beginnings. But 
one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast and one of the reasons a lot of people have wanted to have you on their podcast <laughs> this week, uh, for better or worse, is you just missed the Olympic trials qualifying time at CIM by two seconds, 2.19.02. And I do want to talk about that, but I also want to get deeper into your story as a runner and as a writer. But let's start with CIM. I'd like to go back to a very specific point of the race. Uh, and I'd love for you to take me through the last half mile or so. The clock is probably at 16 something at that point. I'd love to understand what was going on with your body and in your mind during that time. Yeah. I mean, I had, I would just say that there's this amazing psychological moment that I'm trying to fit, unpack. Cause I, as you know, I write about my races, um, started a couple years ago and Honestly, typically it comes pretty naturally. Um, and this week has been a bit of a block because I'm still, I, I kind of feel like throwing up every time I want to write like longer form. Um, there's like a hard, hard, hard truth about um, if you're on the split or you're not. And I think that's probably true for anyone at any pace. I know it's been true in every race I've run where I've really tried to go after a time. Um, but I knew that the splits for 10 miles, 20 miles, um, 20 three miles roughly and 40 K. And when I saw the 40 K split, uh, so it's about five laps to go. I had a bit of a like reckoning where I didn't really want to admit to myself, uh, how few seconds I had to spare. I, things had been going so smoothly, um, that I, and I typically positive split so much more. Like I typically in races go up pretty quickly and today, uh, Sunday, we really chose to go out more conservative, but that meant I didn't have that many seconds to play with. Um, and so it was a really hard, I was, to be totally honest, I, in the last half mile, I was in a tough spot of like trying to come to terms with how close it was going to be and not really, it felt, it honestly looked, like felt like looking at the sun. It was like, I would acknowledge it. And then I like would put it out of my mind. Um, and all the while you're just doing anything to run as fast as you can. So you're surging, you're trying to make meaning out of some, you know, guy you've never met before who's right on your hip and you're trying to pass him. You're trying to catch someone. Um, I mean, my dream of dreams would be, have been that someone I knew would have been around me to, that I was competing against. Cause I always do better in that scenario. Um, and that got me through trying to think, um, from like about a, five laps ago, I, you know, my track background, I switched, to, I switched, switched to laps. So you don't I, have to tell I'm me, like, I know exactly what you're referring to. <laughs> Five laps to go, four laps to go, um, three laps to go. There, I posted a video last year of my friend Paul Leak, um, and he was there with a little over a half mile. And I thought it was an amazing psychological tool because he, at the time yelled four, four more minutes of running, like fight for it, Bronca, four more minutes. And I thought that was such a odd uh, amount of time. Um, maybe it was like a, half mile through the 25th mile, but it was so specific that I was able to use that last year. And so when I passed that marker on the course, I thought like, okay, about four minutes of hard running, uh, fight for it. And then I feel like I told someone it felt like, um, I'm like stuck in this movie in my own mind. Cause it just feels so surreal that I, um, how it actually played out. Um, but the, I, the idea that you see your teammates, I saw Patrick Reeves, who's a friend of yours, a very good friend of both of ours. And, um, he just said, fight, uh, you gotta go, you gotta go. And it, in that moment, like, it just felt like there was a through line between, you know, every race I've ever run that really, really mattered, whether it was college cross country, whether it was high school, um, 
and you're like, okay, I got to go. And you just start kicking as hard as you can. Um, so that was a quarter mile to go. And, um, I couldn't, I still almost couldn't believe it because I was, I was moving pretty well. Um, and when you're trying to run five eighteens and you're, you know, I faded in races before, like I ran pretty well in Boston this spring, but I honestly closed in, in the mid five forties. So when I look down at my watch and I see like five twenty two, five twenty three pace, like you still feel like you're moving, you are moving fast, but technically you're giving back seconds to the OTQ standard. Um, and it's, it's interesting cause I know you are a coach and that's the section, certainly not the last quarter mile, but the last, um, maybe say 10 laps of the track is where I have been beating myself up a little bit post race because I know that there was a, there was a harsh reality and I don't know if I faced it every second of those minutes. Um, and, and that's where I lost it. Did you find yourself constantly looking down at your watch to see how close you were to that 518 pace? Or were you trying to put your mind elsewhere in those final moments to almost distract yourself so that you could just go as hard as you could and not worry so much about if you were hitting that exact split that you needed to to get to the line? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I was telling a I was telling Paul, I talked to Paul yesterday and I said, when you saw me last year, because last year I went out for the OTQ standard, I went out in 68, 48. Um, and then I started a positive split around, uh, mile 20. I ran slower at the end last year. I was down probably almost to five forties. Um, so there reaches a point when you're really slipping where you just don't look at your watch. I didn't look at my watch for the last 5k last year. Cause I was like, there is literally nothing there. That's helpful to me. I'm slowing. There's nothing to see. Um, and it was negative. And I thought that'll be a negative impulse into my mind. And I don't need that right now. I just need to push. So like, I don't know, like I ran faster in the final 5k this year, but I, I feel like I ran harder last year over the final 5k because last year was such a dream. I was like, let's see if I can do this OTQ thing. And then when I realized the dream was probably gone, I was like, wait, I could be under 220. And so I fought for that, like crazy, um, and I've been proud for a year, the fact that I made it under and there's these goals are like really daunting and they kind of get in your head. And there's this, I know that, um, for any of us, like that moment when you think, is this when the, the story is going to go South on me? Um, it never, <laughs> um, you know, I talked to my mom after the race and she said, when did you know you didn't have it? <laughs> and it, it was like within three minutes of the finish. And I was like, I can't talk right now. And I'm like, this is that moment. Like I didn't ever lose it until I, I just didn't get it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting how you feel in different, in different kicks. Um, you know, when it's, it's oddly because it was still a PR, um, and it's the best I've ever felt the marathon. It's like the fastest I've ever run. Like, they, you always say like when you PR, you always feel like you could have gone faster. Um, and so. And are you still feeling that right now that you do have a faster one in you, whether or not you try to go for it before the trials or if you end up sticking with this through the next couple of years? You know, that's really interesting. I was thinking about my progression as I've like started to talk to more people. And um, I've been super fortunate that every marathon I've run, I've been building on the previous marathon over the past five years. Um, and the more marathoners I talk to, the more I realize like that's not always the case. And it's, 
it's a whole different psychological battle if you're coming off a major injury or there's been a big layoff or, you know, for whatever reason, your cycle just wasn't as substantial as other times. Um, so I absolutely think I could run faster. Um, I, I don't know what the time frame would look like on that, but um, it's sort of, in, it feels inevitable because of how many times I've done it over the past five years. Yeah. How often do you think back to, say the time you graduated from Tufts in 2005, you're in your early twenties, you had kind of let running go for a bit at that time. And now here you are, you know, 16 years later, 17 years later on the cusp of qualifying for the Olympic trials. If you think back to that, does it ever center you where you're like, I never thought I'd even be in this position. And here I am disappointed that I missed by two seconds, but I've gone faster than I ever imagined I could. Yeah. I mean, I'm super I've said, I think I literally said a couple years ago, like, this is all gravy. Um, and, and that helped, that's probably a healthier headspace to be in. Um, I'm able to push without so much angst. Um, I was, I was, I spent most of college, honestly, just really burnt out. I was, I was thinking you could do everything, all the workouts, all the mileage, all the socializing. Um, and I was just pretty fatigued. And so my, I would want to take a nap before a 5k or something, you know, it was just pretty much trashed. Um, and so then to my mom said one time, do you, would you have been faster in college if you trained like this? And I said, um, it's like the, the question doesn't even make sense because we trained as a team. I didn't know how to train like this. Um, it's, there's so many things that are different. And so, yeah, I had no idea that this marathoning thing could be so enticing and so much fun. Um, and then, talk about like how you see yourself. Like I grew up a soccer player for 12 years and, um, I obviously am super geeked out on running. My father, um, was a marathoner in his day. And so my brother was the faster runner of the family, um, and wasn't a soccer player. And so in some small way, I'll always think of him as the runner of the family. (laughs) Um, even though I've gone on to like do it for way more years, he's faster than me. He ran a division one at university of Washington. Um, and so it's weird how that works, how you think about yourself. Did you have a conversation with your brother or have you had one with him since the race? He texted me, um, right after. And I texted him back that I really appreciate it. And there wasn't a, a lot that needed to be said. It just meant the world to me. And, um, yeah, it was, it was tough because there, there wasn't a lot that had to be said. You just said he was proud of me. And, um, it's just, I'm at this weird moment where, um, I think when I was younger, I just put a lot of pressure on myself. And then as I'm older, it all feels like gravy. So there's no pressure, but then you also really feel like, um, it makes people, I mean, I get in contact with like runners in their fifties and their sixties and their seventies. And they're like, uh, come on, you're not old. Like we'll talk to you in years. Um, but I'm legitimately running faster than I've ever run in my life. And so that I know that will have to tip at some point. And that's what feels like I'm in touch with my mortality in a weird way. I know I'm not going to pass away, but like that ability to just keep climbing, um, feels super special. And also like just really emotionally intense. Right. Cause you know, at some point it's going to stop. It does for everybody. Yeah, and yeah. for some weird reason, I think when you've started running earlier on in life and even when you've taken a break, as you have in your case and get back to it, you hit like your late thirties and maybe it's like this, you know, 
40-year-old becoming a master's blocker where you're like, okay, it's going to start slowing down at some point. It almost does feel like a death, right? Like, cause you're like, well, I'm never going to put up the times that I did, you know, during this, during this time, maybe I'll still stay with it, but you lose, or you feel like you lose some part of your identity. I like, and that's where, what I've gotten to see is through my experience and how people have reached out to me is people deal with things in many different ways. Um, they see life in different ways and that's totally valid. I, I, I've had older runners reach out to me and be like, it, it doesn't end. You just find new challenges and you do new adventures. And I'm like, sure. But the, the track that I'm on, the train that I've been riding, um, I, again, I took a, a break for seven years of really taking it seriously. But the only thing I've ever known is the next workout you do could be the fastest workout you've ever done. Um, and I certainly don't think that's the only uh, secret to it, being a runner, being an athlete. Um, for the rest of your life, but it is the one I've known. And so, um, there's a, there was a good runner, um, who worked at Nike when I worked there and he had run at the university of Oregon. And I asked him like, what's it, so what's it feel like? Like, how do you know it's, it's over like the getting faster. And he's like, Oh, I ran a workout one day and I looked at the splits. I was like, man, do I have a cold? Like, I don't know. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, that sounds like the grim reaper just like tapped on your shoulder. Um, and he still runs and he's a great dad and his son runs, but, um, I was, I'll never forget that. Let's talk about that seven year break that you had between college and when you got back to training seriously again, about five years ago, what did that period of time away from this lifestyle, away from hard training, away from being so dialed on a goal do for this chapter of your current competitive running career? I think I just allowed me to step away from the ways I'd known it and then re- come back to it. I still like followed the sport quite closely. Um, you know, let's say like 2000, fall of 2007, I, w- I wasn't really running seriously, but I traveled down to New York City to watch the Olympic trials in one of like the greatest days in running that I have experienced. Um, Ryan Hall, Ryan Shea, like just amazing day um so totally geeked out on the sport but i didn't think it involved me um you know, at that level maybe running 20 miles a week and doing some adventures um and i think i'm such an emotional runner i like i just do it for this like intense like full-throated um like punch you in the gut feeling and that's why i write that's what i try to convey and i just didn't know if that was there was anything there for me. I mean, I was living in the Bay area at the time and I had friends running ultras all the time. And I'm like, that seems really nice way to get outside, but I don't know. I I like go for runs and do other stuff. Like I just, it wasn't really something my wife likes to say, like, this is not the man I married. Um, (laughs) and I just don't know. And, And in those years, I, when I came back to it, the biggest thing I promised myself that's proven to be like a godsend is, um, I had, I wasn't going to run if I was injured because um, I'd spent those formative college years. Like just, I told myself every lie runner, you know, we could talk forever about like the lies you tell yourself as an injured runner. Like I'm not really injured. I just, um, it's a little bit sore, but I'll be all right. Um, and so I came back to, and I was like, I'm just not going to do this. If I'm, um, I'm going to find a way to stay healthy and knock on wood. Like it's really been a fairly healthy journey. Um, and it's, that part is a little difficult to describe, um, like how, how that's evolved. I don't know. Um, it's not like I went into some 
crazy um, journey of other sports or mountain biking or this or that. Um, I will say I, the group sort of fitness class and weight training and circuit training craze has happened a bit. So I went to some of those with my wife. I was working at Nike and we would do like group strength training. And the, those are things I just never knew anything about. I really always, if you say weight training, I think of like a high school kid doing tons and tons of reps of uh, running man, like mm-hmm. five pounds, like over and over and over and over and over. Um, not a deadlift, um, you know, not, but I remember, I did a track workout in 2014 and I came off the, we did like a 200 and I was like, I have no, I literally don't know how I can do this. I haven't done a track workout like this in years. Um, and I was like, Oh, it must be those like overhead presses. This feels similar to the overhead press we were doing in this class the other day. Um, and that was definitely an unlock for me about like how to think about your body in a different way. Let's go back to 2014. That's when the switch sort of flipped for you and you recommitted yourself to running. You started putting goals ahead of you, working toward them. You ran the Boston Marathon that year. What was the spark that ignited all of it? I I tell people that it sounds um, like too silly to be true or too Hollywood to be true, but um, when I moved back to Portland in 2013, I started running more consistently. Like just with people here who I knew who ran. And then, I mean, I think like a lot of runners, I know exactly where I was when the Boston bombing happened. Um, and I spent the rest of the day just like watching the news and being pretty in shock. Um, and my friends and I all said like, we should do that next year. Um, and so I, I was, you know, lucky to be able to get a qualifier and get back. And then it just started to feel like this, um, this little itch that was like, well, that was fun. What, what could the next thing be? Um, so I ran 241 at Boston and I was again, lucky I was working at Nike and they have a lot of extra, they sponsor the Chicago marathon. So, um, I was super fortunate in that a friend said, would you want a bib? Cause I never would have signed up like in, you know, the previous fall. Um, it just wouldn't have happened. But again, in pursuit of that crazy emotional experience, um, it wasn't like, I'm going to go to this local, um, course or this other fast course. Um, I had never heard of calendar national marathon at the time. Um, but the Chicago marathon sounded pretty exciting. Um, and going into Chicago, I just borrowed a goal from a friend. He's like a audacious guy who said like, I always felt like I should be able to run six minute pace or under six minute pace for the marathon. So and you were like, like, why not? Yeah. Like that sounds good. I'll try to do that. And you know, I don't know how I trained really. Um, but I trained a little bit and, um, there's, there are these things that this is a sample size of one. You know, I read about people's experiences. I'm like, that works for him. For me, uh, right after Boston, Patrick Reeves moved to Portland and he had run 229 at Boston. And he started to set this, um, this cadence of like, yeah, I, I run long every weekend. I do workouts every week. Um, you're welcome to join. And so then when I got a uh, Chicago bib, I, I was like, any suggestions on workouts? Um, and he's like, yeah, I got some ideas. And he kicked my ass on a couple of workouts. <laughs> um, it helped prepare me for Chicago. And like, you just go like, um, I took the spring of 15 off because my son was born. Um, but it was never like this crazy thing that I was just going to stop doing. It was just a hobby that now I was doing all the time. You mentioned earlier how 
your wife made a comment that this wasn't the man that I married. I'd love to dig into that a little bit. I'd love to understand how that dynamic played out between the two of you now that this was a big part of your life when it previously hadn't been. It's a really good question because it's something we're in a really good place now. Um, but we were in different places over the years. Like I've posted online about the fact that at times Julia was like, well, I get that you have this perfect thing. You, it encapsulates social, um, you know, connection and it's good exercise and it like drives you. Um, so there, it, it didn't always like, sit perfectly with her. Cause if, if she didn't have that, then it wasn't, um, like there wasn't, I couldn't say like, Oh, you should go do this other thing. Um, and it'll be the same. Um, but over the years we found a really good cadence and, you know, she really pushes back on people who say like, Oh, you know, she's the savior. She's this, or she's that she's, uh, we found a way to make it work that, you know, it, it's not, I think in a meaningful way, it is how we prioritize and like long runs on Saturday mornings because by the end of the week, you're kind of tired and get extra rest and get up early and do it first thing. And then I, I've built my mileage for instance, like I'm up to about a hundred miles a week in six days because I take Sundays off because it's good for recovery. And because then I can really prioritize all the things we're going to do together as a family. Um, and I'm pretty proud. I've said, my friends have said to me like, you about how I move time around. Um, so like I don't run in the evenings cause that's my time with my son. Um, and I think there's any number of ways to go about it. I totally respect different ways that people approach this, but the way that it's worked for me is like, if I'm going to, if I need to run early, I'll, you know, get up at five and run from five thirty to six forty five. Like you can get in 13 miles then. And then, um, 12, 11 to 13 miles, maybe do a lunch run now that I'm doubling. I mean, doubling really starts to get into like, it's going to take a lot of your time. Um, but yeah, I take pride in, uh, both prioritizing it and not having my friend group think like, Oh, Peter's not here. Cause he's off running. Um, because that's not just like what makes me happy. I don't feel like I can make it too far if I feel like I'm sacrificing versus if it's what I'm celebrating. How has Julia's perspective changed as your goals have continued to grow over the years? Has she become more supportive of them as they've taken on more seriousness and more time and more of a commitment? Because trying to get an Olympic trials qualifier is very different than trying to run six minute pace at the Chicago marathon. In some ways it is in other ways, not so much. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it, it's become very clear to both of us that it's not just um, like a, that's something that I've come about up with that I haven't really thought through. Um, and so, I mean, when I went for the qualifier last year in the fall, in December 18, um, I missed, I ran 219.40, still a great day. And then we kind of got into a, an argument because she's like, well, it feels like you're already ready to go again. Um, and we didn't really talk about it. I was like, you're right. That's, that was kind of unfair of me. Um, at the same time, I realized after the race, it was kind of already built in because if I'd qualified, then I was sure as hell going to train for the next coming year. Um, and then by 
just missing by a bit. I, it didn't take me that long. I mean, I think it took me about five or six hours to be like, let's do this again. Um, and then recently my cousin who, you know, lives close by and we go on adventures, he said, I can't wait till you're retired. Um, <laughs> we're going to have so much fun and do so many adventures. And Julia has I, clearly has like evolved in her thinking. Cause she's, she looked at him and just sort of shook her head. She's like, he's not retiring anytime soon. Like it's not, um, there's, it's just how it's the it's the zone we're living in um and we've had to have like lots of talks about how it fits in to our life into my work into her work um we have a son and he is four and a half now and um you know we have one child and it it really works for us um there's a story where i i was reading him a book about a bunny that goes to the moon um and it's about a mom and the bunny like grabs onto a balloon and goes up to the moon. And afterwards he said, like, does the bunny not have a data? And I said, Oh no, like the data is just not in the story. Maybe the data is busy. And he said, maybe the data is out running. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I was like, Oh man, he's paying attention. Uh, <laughs> did that one kind of punch you in the gut or did you let it roll off? Um, I just, I feel like it is just part of the context. I was like, yeah, that's real. Um, and because it's what he knows, he's like, he goes to the farmer's market on Saturday with his mom because I'm out running. Um, and it's, I, I didn't take it totally as I don't see you because of running. Cause I really do prioritize time with him. But I, at the same time, I knew that it means he's very aware of how the, the world around him. I'd love to play off of that a little bit because you had mentioned how growing up your dad was a marathon runner and one of the first pieces of writing that I read by you was called Raised a Runner. I think that was like 2014, like kind of right around that time that you ran the Boston Marathon. What was, looking back, what was your perspective as a child as you watched your dad train and race marathons? And I don't know what level that he did it at, but it sounds like he was committed to it much in the same way that you are. So I'd love to get some perspective on what that was like for you as a kid. Yeah, to me, it's just a model of, um, he did a lot of his marathoning before I was born. And then he was still doing some of the running. Like he built a, there's a little carriage called a kid runner now, um, built by these engineers. But in the eighties, he built something at a local bike shop that was kind of like the eighties version of that. And he would pull me around, um, in a local road race. Like it was just sort of what I knew. Um, so when I'm, I'm always fascinated talking to people who are coming into running really fresh because it's so ingrained in what I know. Um, he was never that fast. He qualified for Boston once. I mean, he grew up in a different era era, right? Like he told the story once that like in high school, he, uh, the coach said, okay, Dennis and this other guy go run around the backstop and back. And they both went off and run. And I guess while they were running, the coach said, run like Jim or whoever, don't run like Dennis. <laughs> and you're like, just form wise, like that's how they taught kids back then. Um, and I just always thought that was a crazy way of, um, just saying like running is very simple. Um, but my dad, the part I experienced was more the stories, the tales, um, the appreciation for the, I mean, I grew up really around running in the nineties. So it was like watching, I was watching diamond league or whatever it was called back then 
you know, in the nineties watching, um, growing up in Portland, you're around, you, you know, go down to the Prefontaine classic every summer and get autographs of the best runners in the world. Um, we could talk at, <laughs> at nauseum about like what, what that era was like in hindsight, but it, it was like, um, it was just sort of as part of me as the air I breathe. Um, and it was just accepted that that was totally an open path if I wanted to take it. And so running, um, was like I wrote about in the essay. It was just something that was really celebrated, um, on all the time. Um, and so I always knew it would be there. Hey, we're going to take a quick break because I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. Tracksmith's products are designed to solve the problems that are unique to the experience of amateur training and racing, whether that's building the perfect pair of tights for chilly New England long runs or making split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets for a marathon, Tracksmith designers sweat the details. That also means they only work with the finest materials from soft and wicking merino wool in their base layers to water repellent four-way stretch dry skin in their bislet pants. Whether you're training through the depths of winter or you need a special race day outfit to help power your next PR, Tracksmith has you covered. I personally own a ton of their gear and I train and race in it all the time, including last month at the New York City Marathon. Looking for a very last minute gift for the runner on your list? Why not give them a Tracksmith gift card? They've got digital ones available for purchase at tracksmith.com. Just click on the accessories link in the menu bar and it's the first item that comes up on the page. You can follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and do your shopping at tracksmith.com. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What has this most recent part of your own journey done for your relationship with your dad? It's, it's been really special. I mean, it's, it's always, um, I'm getting a little emotional because there's, I've said to people for a year, like, I'll be fine if I don't qualify. Like, I will. Like, I am blessed and I have a wonderful life and I'll be fine either way. Um, I think on some level, like, no, I absolutely know my father loves me no matter what, through and through. That's beyond out of a question. Um, But man, did I want to qualify for him. And there's like, there's a moment, um, in the course at CIM where you, like you go over a bridge at 21 and a half. Um, and I felt the, I've run it for three years. So I went over that bridge and I felt the best I've ever felt. I was, I was like, man, I felt worse here. And I just started to get fired up. And I, I was just like, you gotta go. Like, you gotta go. This isn't even about you anymore. Like, this is not about you. It's about your teammates who are injured it's about uh, all these guys who like have messaged you stories from all over the country who, you know, I mean, I got messages from guys that we ran against in new England that it's like, it's obviously beyond rivalry days, but the messages from them were like, just, I don't even know if they meant it, if they said it really, or it was just between the lines, but it was just so clear to me. They were like, you gotta go. Like you, I would, 
in so many words, they were saying like, I would kill to be in your position and you got to make the most of it. Um, and you know, that's what I was, that's what I was hopefully running for those last couple miles, um, was just really trying to execute, um, sure for myself, but for others, because like I, I get really twisted around the axle in my own mind about what it would mean to be a trials qualifier. Cause it totally doesn't make sense to me. Um, like I know how good those runners are. Um, and it, it's why I love the marathon. So there's an X factor that I've been able to like toil at and just get better and better at, but really meaningfully, like, I feel like I, in the best way possible, it's been, it's like, a, it's the race that I've always dreamed other races would be. Like I wanted to be a 5k guy and, um, I just wasn't like, I'm just not that great at the 5k. I've never been able to sort of dance at the 5k and, you know, milers who can mile. It's just like so amazing. And so when I'm marathoning, I'm able to do it in a way that just exceeds my other skills. Um, and it's good to be good at something. It's fun to be good at something. Um, and to have other people reach out from a, all over, but really the people who know me and they know, like I ran next to Bronca, I, I beat Bronca in college and, um, man, like look at what might be possible. So I know I just wandered a lot. Um, for my dad, I know my dad will always love me. Um, the Olympic trials, it wasn't really part of the conversation in the Bromka household. Um, and so for the fact that it's become one recently is already mind blowing. Um, and, um, it's hard to make sense of almost. I know he was at the finish line when you crossed. What did he say to you in that moment? Um, he just told me he loved me and he understood. And I mean, you know, I missed the two way state meet my junior year by like a second. And it felt like I was like 15 again. Um, it wasn't, it's just like nothing, nothing different. You know, it's, it's all just still for fun. It doesn't, um, it's all just like for the love of, um, living a passionate life and pursuing your goals. Um, so I just, more than anything, I just, I was thankful to be that he was there to get a hug from him. Um, and I wrote on Instagram that like, I looked over his shoulder and saw Magda Boulay's face and it was, I don't even know if she remembers this, but like, I felt like it was, uh, scrunching up and I was just like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe, um, like I'm in this moment. Like how, you know, cause it's like, even if I had qualified, I don't even know if I would have believed that I was an Olympic trials qualifier, if that makes any sense at all. Well, I'd love to dig into something that you said a few minutes ago. Um, and the question I have for you is what would it mean or have meant to have qualified for the Olympic trials marathon? Because you said that's a question you've been pondering in your mind for some time now. Yeah. I mean, I was saying to someone two days before the race, I was like, if you're, if you're as deep into this as I am, then you truly appreciate a whole bunch of factors of success. So like, the be the biggest compliment I've ever gotten in recent years was from like some 
guys who were a little older at Nike and they were just like, they ran hard back in their day, you know, let's say 10, 15 years ago. And they were like, man, I can't believe how fast you and Patrick have gotten. It's really impressive. And that, that to me was like peer to peer. Those are like guys I had heard about and I just always assumed were better than me. Um, so, I mean, the beauty of the sport is that like the times allow you to really um, prove yourself and throw it out there. So the fact that I, I was already a 219 marathoner and then to do it again, like really solidifies in a way like um, something I'm so, so, so proud of. The fact that they, you know, the fact that they drew the Olympic trials standard at 219, it used to be 218, it used to be 222. Um, I think there's a real question um, if USATF wants to uh, consider it about like what they would hope for the future of that meet. And I have all sorts of thoughts about like what it could be because I mean, you know, I'm literally incapable of making the track trials and that's totally fine. Um, the track trials are something amazing and something different. The fact that they have drawn this line in this interesting space doesn't mean I would have any involvement in, um, you know, the front of the pack as, um, those guys throw down and in a weird way, like a little part of me really, really wants to watch, um, the top guys. I want to watch Scott Bobble have a day. Um, I want to watch these guys really go for it. And I was like, Oh man, if I run in the race, I won't be able to watch them. <laughs> um, That's how I feel so about weird. running Boston when I do in New York. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm excited to be here and experience this, but I want to know what's happening at the front. Cause there's some good racing going on. I think, amazing. I think we all fight that at some point. There's that amazing connection between all the racers, but there's the like, Oh man, I'll, I guess I'll have to watch it later after everyone knows. Um, and that feels like a very comfortable place for me as a fan you know um that's that's what i know if you're going to care about the trials you're almost like um you'd be sad to miss it even if somehow obviously you'd prefer to participate and i think for for me participating in the trials what i've always the what i have focused on is i think i could outperform you know even if i had run three seconds faster and qualified um that would make me basically the last qualifier right um and then i think i would be able to outperform on the day i think i'd be able to beat people but um you know that's just what the sort of competitive thing you try to set up and inspire yourself let's put a pin in that i want to come back to it you have been on this trajectory over the last five years where almost every marathon that you've run in this period since 2014 you've gotten faster i know boston this past year uh Spring of 2019, you're in like 223 something after you had run 219.46 at um, CIM last year, but you helped Bowerman Track Club Elite win the team title. And I think there was one other one in there where you didn't necessarily PR, but you've been on this trajectory. And any runner listening to this can relate. You run, whether it's four hours, three and a half hours, three hours, whatever, you're like, oh, I wonder if I can break that barrier that we fabricate in our mind. And then you do, and you're like, oh, I did run six minute pace for the marathon. I wonder if I can break it. And you kind of keep going on this, you know, journey of your own to see like, okay, how far back can I push the clock? And concurrently with that, at least here in the US, these last few years, there's been this huge buzz around the trials, unlike ever before. I think there's like 700 plus people qualified now. You were in it the last two years at CIM when there's like 100 plus guys at halfway 
going after this mark and they're chasing it at grandma's and, you know, at other races all around. There's just like this, this buzz. And some of that is amplified by, you know, social media. I'd love to understand from, from your perspective, how much of that buzz in the last few years has encouraged you to give yourself a shot and to stay with it and, and go for this trial standard. I mean, not just, you know, I'm trying to get faster than I was in the last marathon, but I'm trying to like do this thing and break this barrier that's, or this mark that's been set for me. I mean, to be honest, it, it starts, it starts and ends with my teammates. And so, um, when we ran, when I ran 229, I was super proud, then ran 228 at Boston. And then we ran 223 at CIM two years ago. And it was like, okay. And it really was, again, I don't know if left to my own devices, I would have really focused on the trials because the next four minutes, four plus minutes are, are going to be really hard. But um, having teammates that are like, no, we're going for this. Um, I wrote a piece called Burn the Boat that really resounded with people. And I, um, you know, I've written almost two dozen pieces now and that one really stands out to people as audacious and they're really they love it um i'm I'm sure they like uh, map it onto other things in their life but to me it felt like it all that mattered was my teammates and then the work that we needed to do over the next two years or over the next year and then for me the next two years so um it's almost in some ways felt like like you're saying social media um we knew that the trials maybe was possible um, and so we were going to put ourselves in a position to go after it. And that involves certain types of long runs, certain types of workouts, certain types of repetition. Um, and then it's almost felt like this tsunami has surrounded me of, um, other b- people being like, I'm going to go for it too. Like, you know, let's throw caution to the wind. Let's go for it. And I, I'm, totally that's totally fine i like i'm like hell yeah like more the more the better let's do this and it all culminated on sunday with just this absurd pack of guys um you know that that doesn't take anything away from me it adds to my energy it adds to my excitement um the brutality of the marathon is seven miles in 14 miles in 21 miles in, um, it's going to get really, really, really hard. Um, so it's, uh, it was exciting. Um, I, someone was saying it's like sort of this weird version of the sport where not only do you get to go like see an elite level, but you can actually participate as an amateur. Like it'd be like going and playing one inning of a game. It's the analogy doesn't really work, but there (laughs) It, like I don't mean to talk any uh, down at anybody who joined our pack on Sunday. That's not my intent. My intent is like I think it's cool if there's guys who lasted for th- for three miles. Um, it was a wild ride, and um, no one had to say anything. Like things got real as the race progressed. Um, but it was certainly a culmination of all these people's imagination for what it like what this trials thing could be about. You've touched on it a little bit, but do you think you'd even be remotely close to where you are right now as a runner without your teammates? It's just not even a thing. Like it's not, it's like you wouldn't do this on your own. It's zero to one. Um, I run a lot of miles on my own and I honestly think it's like, I've thought about it as, I mean, I love running. It's, it's nice, but like it's as simple as I'm going out and I'm foraging for more red blood cells for more oxygen so I can 
uh, keep up with my teammates twice a week. Um, and like, that's it. That's the beginning and the end. Um, now it's super fun. It's social. It's all these things. Um, but when my buddy Patrick ran two seventeen last year, it both rightly like blows your, like a box out of your brain and says like, wait a second, is that even possible? I guess it is possible. And then it, then you're like, I want to hit that. I don't think it's any different than like when I first learned a soccer move or, you know, a, a basketball trick, like you hit a shot and you say, if someone throws you the ball and you're like, can you match it? Um, that's how I think about it. And so if you, you know, if you didn't match it, you would go to the park by yourself and you would practice. Um, because you'd want to match it the next time you met up with your friends. And so it's, uh, it, the booing effect is insane. Um, it is, and it's to the fact it's to the effect of like, when I don't work out with them, I do very different workouts. Like I don't do, I never touch the track alone. I'll just do minute based efforts on the river. Um, because I really like can't, I think physiologically I can still get really good stimulus, but I don't hit the same splits and it's not, um, it's just not even worth it. I go into a negative hole, whereas I don't really get negative on workouts by myself. Um, so it's been wild. And, and also my teammates like curtail my, as you might imagine from my thousands of words posted online, I'm like, I think about this stuff a lot. I come up with fanciful visions for how it might go down. And then they're kind of like, Hey, why, why are you thinking about it so much? Let's just, let's just, let's go do it. And you're like, okay. Yeah, you're right. Have you always been uh, a very cerebral person? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I come from an emotional family, um, you know, really passionate. Um, my mom's 100, 100% Italian and swears a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of wearing your heart on your sleeve and throwing it out there. I'd love to switch gears and talk about your writing about running. I referenced the Raised to Runner piece 2014. That's the first one of yours that, I was aware of. I mean, I was obviously aware of you before that, but I remember reading that and being like, oh, like that was a pretty damn good piece. And it was long. And you followed that up with like 9,000 seconds. You mentioned Burn the Boat, and there are a bunch of others there that I'm not naming. But when did you decide to start taking a lot of these thoughts that you were having on the run or, you know, in between runs and put them down onto a website and decide to share them with? everyone to read um it's so yeah the razor runner uh, i ran chicago and i broke six minute pace and it was it's all in the essay but my father had been experiencing heart trouble um and it all kind of came to a head the weekend that i was flying to chicago um so i came home he had had a successful surgery and i had run a successful race and i'll never exactly know how that essay came about. Um, I didn't really tell anyone I was going to write it. I sat down with my laptop, uh, at a restaurant and just started writing. Um, and then I worked on it uh, a bit and I sent it to a friend who's a very good writer and she helped me rework it a bit. But, um, it, it came almost out of nowhere. I'd, I'd loved writing, um, in college and it was a big part of my major as an anthropology major, but, um, it wasn't, uh, something I'd been again doing a lot of in my twenties cause it wasn't, it's not central to my uh, professional life. And so it, I see it as an, a sort of a current, uh, outlet that 
dovetails well with the rest of my life. So um, at, at the time, I just thought I wanted to catalog these this amazing story um, that had happened, and I really wanted to put it out there. And then I got this amazing reaction um, by it was read a bunch by people online. I, I threw it on this website, medium.com that I didn't even know that much about five years ago, but um, it seemed like it had a pretty display with pictures. Um, and the, the response was really resounding and I was really flattered. Um, and then I didn't write another one for a, a year and a half until I, I broke 230 at Boston. And I really did think like, okay, I just broke 230 at Boston. That might be the fastest I ever run. Um, I should really write, write it down. <laughs> I should document like what, what an incredible, it was the Olympic year, right? So, um, there weren't that many Americans there. I finished 10th American and that was so far out of my league at the time. I just wanted to document it. Um, and I think in a really meaningful way, like I had, I found myself in a moment with the skills to write and enjoying it and then with something to say. Um, and I think like a lot of people, I have a job that requires a lot of analytical rigor. Um, but it's not particularly creative and I don't have like full autonomy to just do whatever I want. So it's been a, over the last few years, as I've built up momentum, I've both gotten, um, really kind responses from people around the world. Um, and then also it's been a really positive source of my mental energy because like putting together the right slides for a presentation does take a lot of work, but it's, um, just not that emotional and fulfilling in nearly the same way. Um, so, and then I think I, it's how I thought things through these pieces would come to me. Um, I just, I wrote a piece called the, um, the marathon doesn't know you anything. Um, because like nine months before someone had posted on Strava, how disappointed they were in their marathon performance the other, the day before. And they're like, you know, I'd trained so hard. I deserved a better race than yesterday. Um, and it was like a seed in my brain of like marathon doesn't owe that guy anything. He doesn't owe anyone anything. I hate to interrupt, but let me cut in right there. Did you think of that at all after your race on Sunday? That line, the marathon doesn't owe you anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, it, I mean, my cousin is a, uh, creative guy and he he texted me after the race like it's so much better for the story and for the brand to miss by two seconds and it was like i i i felt like i kind of five four days later still feel almost stuck in this moment of um it is pretty wild to be i don't know if not the the first guy out among the first few out and and to know that i i mean yeah when i wrote the marathon doesn't know you anything for other people. I wrote it for myself. And so I come back to those paragraphs, not, and I think that's what I aim in terms of my voice, in terms of what I share to other people is to not be preachy. Um, when I get scared shitless, like a month out from a marathon, I return to the paragraphs I've written down online about like, um, if you make it there healthy, you're one of the lucky ones. You know, if, at the end of the day, it's about, um, you will be exposed. Like it will take from you everything you brought in more and you will be exposed. And that's, there was a moment at CIM this year where I thought like, are, are we just going to go across the line with like 30 to 50 guys, like all together and all qualifying? And then it's like, Oh no, we will all be exposed in like 15 minutes. And we, luckily we have a, a first timer on our team, Julian Henniger who qualified. And at 15, I whispered to him, I was like five miles, 
easy. Like then we can have some fun. Um, because I knew he would maybe surge at 16 or 17 and he waited till 20 and he got out, um, ahead of the, the bear. And then like, he almost walked the final mile, but he kept it going and he qualified. Um, but like he was, you know, he's a great runner and he, we, everyone out there is exposed. Um, so yeah, I mean, those words, it's not even that they come back to haunt me because they are so part of my brain that they're just there. Are you surprised that your words have resonated with as many people as they have and on the level that they have? You know, I've thought about that um, a bit more over the last year than I I did initially. And the things I've come back to um, are, I know a lot about running. Like we've talked about, it's like been around my life um, since I was born. And so I'm able to articulate some things that I I think a lot of people who are newer to the sport um, just haven't, maybe either haven't experienced it yet or they're experiencing it for just like the first or second time. Um, and, and I'm also emotional, like we discussed. So I like really geek out on that side of it. Like you'd be amazed as a coach, how little I know about like how to articulate how workouts work. Um, and like the, the workings of training. Um, but the, um, the, but the emotional journey of what it's going to involve I'm, is like what my mind obsesses. And then um, I had a guy write to me and he said, would you give me some pointers about writing? I have to write an application essay for a school and I'm curious, curious how you think about it. And I'd like to like, I was struggling. So I thought I'd reach out to someone I know who I respect. And I said, I really appreciate it. So we hopped on the phone and what stood out to me in talking to him, what I realized after talking to him was, I mean, I still think of you as a miler at Stonehill and like so much faster than me. Um, and I, I know like inherent to who I am, like where I sit in the hierarchy of running. And so I find it freeing because I can write about running. The last thing I would ever allow myself to do is puff myself up, um, and so I think it's allowed me to really enjoy like moment by moment in a marathon in my writing afterwards or race to race or topic to topic. Um, I'm it's, I realized in this talking to this guy, I was like, you're going to want to think about what some hard truths of your, who you are, are that you could surface that are just very accurate and very honest. And they're, they're not um, braggadocious and they're, um, but they're also not like fake self deprecating. Um, I, take a lot of care not to um understate and sort of like backhanded compliment myself or say like it doesn't matter i'm like no if you can do this what i'm blown away by is that i can and that's what i try to articulate but then i feel a freedom it's like i have a tether because i would never allow myself to um overstate how good i am at running like it just sounds like the most absurd thing in the world do you ever feel any external pressure from the writing that you've shared and as your kind of platform and we'll call it notoriety has grown that when you put up a result such as you did this past weekend that you're going to hear from people about it or is that just something that's not even in your consciousness? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I've had a couple experiences where I run into people like say in the Boston weekend and they're like, Hey, I can't, I can't wait to read your recap. Um, And I realized I have a, sort of a, I'm fortunate in how my mind works that I really don't even consider it until after the race. 
I was like, what? I'm stressed out about the race. I have not even thought about it, even if I'm, it, it's very presumptuous of you to think that I'm going to write a story. Of course I'm going to write a story. I've done it like three times at this point. Um, but I don't really think about it, but I do think about leading up to this. Um, it's funny. I read a interview or a post by Chris Derrick, the pro on my team, um, Bowerman. And he, he was saying how he can't imagine the, the amount of pressure he would have felt if he was in Kipchoge's shoes in Vienna. Um, the whole world looking at just one runner, not even a race. And so in my mind, thinking about like the fact that I called my shot, you know, December 8th, I'm going to go for it. And all these people were writing me from all over many. I know many, I didn't know saying like, I'm rooting for you. I was like, this pales in comparison to what Elliot went through. Um, well, especially when it's not your livelihood as far yeah, as how and, yeah. you make your living or put food on the table. Which is fascinating to me. Yeah, um, that's totally. I mean, this is all for fun. And, you know, I think two things can be true. And social media is hard because I say to people, like, I want you to know that there are really meaningful things in the world that are way, way, way more important. Um, That's like Bob Costas has a great line where he's like, you know, so and and such happened in the sports the broadcasters will be like, well, that really puts it all in perspective. Um, and he's like, I'm sorry, we're at a baseball game. Like, did you think this was the world? This is called the world series, but like, this is, if that put it in perspective, maybe you had the world out of perspective until just then. Um, so it, it, I, I think it's important in life to care about things like with everything you have. And also I think that, um, you shouldn't be criticized for people by people to say like, well, it's not as though it's this or that importance. Um, you know, on Friday, I was definitely nervous last week and it's again, not that it needed to be put in perspective, but a friend of mine who's close to me, his mother, uh, has cancer and we were touching base last week. And so like, if there was even an iota of me, like getting out of my skis emotionally, it was just like, okay, I mean, come on. Um, it's just running all for fun. Yeah, it's just running and it's just, it's a passion pursuit. Um, and, um, I think it, what I would say is, um, I take, I take offense if anyone, um, you know, I reserve the right to be like deeply disappointed. If I don't qualify, I reserve the right to be hundred percent emotional, um, and burst into tears on the ground. If I realize I just missed, um, and that doesn't, that also doesn't mean that I have the world out of perspective because I'm just so fortunate to be there. I think a lot of that is why your writing and your story and your journey has resonated with people. Not everyone's going after an Olympic trials qualifier, but most people who are involved in the sport are going after something. Maybe it's a BQ, maybe it's a PR, maybe it's breaking four hours or three hours or whatever it is. But one thing that you touched on in your writing, it is very emotionally charged and you do a very good job of articulating that side of it. And I think that's relatable to a wider swath of people than the technical side of it. Obviously, mm. everyone's running miles and everyone's doing workouts and you can read about intervals and marathon pace runs and like percentage of heart rate and you know yada, yada, yada. But most people are going to get like intimidated by those details or mm. they're just not very interesting or like you, they just don't know how to articulate it. But that emotional side of it is an often, I think, 
from a, a coaching perspective, because this is kind of what drives my coaching is I try to understand the athlete and the psychological side of things and what their motivations are and, you know, sort of how they're thinking about things. Whereas, you know, I am, I mean, my background's in philosophy and psychology. Yeah. It's not in yeah. exercise physiology. <laughs> so it's like, it's just, it's just like a different perspective. And it's interesting for me when I'm just sitting back and observing what people are, you know, connecting with. And I, I think that's why people are connecting. It's because, you know, the, the emotional side of it is often underemphasized, whether it's by coaches or whether it's by the literature, mm. you know, that we're reading. And it's so much about like, oh, well, if you want to break three hours or qualify for the trials, like, you know, you've got to be able to do like this workout, like this, this is an workout, indicator yeah. or, you yeah. know, you've yeah. got to have like these certain like, you know, physiological tools. And it's like, and well, yeah, the, to a certain yeah. degree you do, but it's like not everyone can connect with that. But there's an emotional side of it that's very real and has, you know, a huge influence on how this all comes together. I think that there's the physical, which you're talking about from the coaching. There's the mental, which is sort of the performance mindset um, and all the things. And then there's the emotional. And what I notice is like I am camped out in that third category of the emotions of the experience. I get a lot of messages from other dads who have jobs and have kids and have families. And it's I, I sense in their writing to me that they're almost saying like, thank you for like giving me permission to care about something that is totally superfluous, mm -hmm. um, but matters to me. Um, and that, and that fuels the, my passion for the rest of life because I just get the sense when, and they lay it out, like they have jobs, they have kids, they have a lot of, um, constraints and responsibilities. Um, but maybe they were searching for something to like keep them fired up and just keep them happy about the day. Um, and they read my writing and they're like, wait, like, this guy's not talking about splits and he's not talking about workouts too much. Um, but he seems to be saying that it's okay to really, really, really care about something that doesn't matter. Um, um, it don't, but it matters because life is just a journey. Well, that's why storytelling is important. We see ourselves in other people's stories and it's the stories that you've told about, you know, picking this back up again in your mid early mid thirties, like doing this while you're a father of a young child, you're married, you work a full-time job. Again, not everyone's training for the trials, but everyone's, you know, chasing, not everyone, but everyone who's interested is chasing mm -hmm. a similar or running holds a similar place in their lives. It's a serious, you know, pursuit that at the end of the day really doesn't mean all that much, but it is important to them. And they see that in your story and it makes them either feel better about themselves or it helps give them the words to explain to their spouse why it is <laughs> as important as it is. Um, so, you know, kudos to you for, you know, for sharing that. We see it, you know, in other stuff too. I mean, I've been very open about my struggles with disordered yeah. eating and it's not an easy thing to, to write about and it's very emotional, but people see their story in that and then they're able to like take the next step for themselves. So, you know, I think that's why this sort of thing is important and I think why it's great that we, one of the advantages of living in the time that we do is these stories, you know, are out there for people to, you know, read and be inspired by and, you know, help guide them along their own path. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I've always been, had a lot of respect for the stories you've put about, out about yourself because I think you fashion them in a way that is intended to provide utility to others. Um, and that is storytelling, but it's not how everyone does storytelling. Yeah. So. But it's also the point of this podcast, too, and why I have guests such as yourself on, because it's by listeners hearing, you know, these stories that 
you know, they're going to be able to take something away from it or maybe see themselves in it. And it's going to make them a better person, maybe a better runner, maybe a better dad. And we're all here to help each other out. And I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, that's pretty great. Last bit, because I know we need to wrap up here. Um, you ran 219.02 at CIM, missed the trials by two seconds. <laughs> As of right now, you're not going. Um, we have no idea what things are going to look like heading into 2024. So where does it go from here? Do you run Houston? Do you book your ticket to Atlanta and go cheer on your teammates? I'd love to end on that point. <laughs> I can't believe that's your last question. I've been saving it all this time. Uh, Yeah. Oh man. I can't believe that's your last question. Um, I, um, I got a bib to Houston about two months ago. I bought a bib, um, just in case that I didn't get to shoot my shot at CIM. Um, if I thought I realized in a moment of panic that I, um, what was most important to me was taking, just unloading this awesome fitness that I had built. Um, and I said to my wife, <laughs> we're sitting in bed. She looks at her phone. And she's like, Houston marathon. Uh, when, like, what? when's that? Um, I said, Oh, don't worry about it. It's like only a backup in case it's a total downpour or I get the flu. Um, and I don't get to run, um, CIM. Um, but not really like if I miss or something, cause I had, you know, missed the previous year. Um, and so I spent 24 hours up until Monday night, um, just dead set against running Houston. Um, because it's, it's not how I think about marathoning. I hope I've made it exceedingly clear, um, to everyone. And in this hour with you that like, we don't leave a lot to chance, um, as Bowerman track club elite, when it comes to marathoning, there's not like, I hope we put it together. I think I use the analogy, a, a friend, a family friend, like her 10 year old was like, why doesn't he go run another one? And I said, well, it's sort of similar to if you in those action movies where they need another, they need to save someone in space and you can't just spin up another rocket ship in no time at all. Um, you like, it takes a long time to build something like this. So I was pretty against it because I felt like it was not how I do things. Um, that said, as my close friend and coach, um, de facto coach Patrick Reeves said, like, this might be extenuating circumstances. So I'm in the couple of days of figuring out, um, what a six week block would look like for Houston. So the option is there. Should you choose to accept it? Yeah. And I think I can get around. I think I just need to find my legs again. Uh, I've never done a six week turnaround or a 10 week turnaround. So, um, I don't, I hope it's clear to everyone. Like I'm not afraid of failure. Um, I, if anything, I'm trying to figure out like what is to be gained. Um, or just like what that would look like. I had to get my mind. And my dad said to me, again, a student of all the sports, he said, you know, you won't do it unless you're ready. You won't high jumpers hit, you know, classically hit world records or, um, long jumpers do. And they, they know they could do it because they'd done it in practice. Um, so what I realized is if I had qual, if I'd run three seconds faster and a qualifier for the trials, we already, have a 24 week training block planned out that started in September to, uh, February 29th. And so I would definitely be back on that training plan, um, within a few weeks. And I just, and I would already have a, some really tough long runs on the book. So we'll see what, well, where my legs come around. Um, and then I got a Twitter DM from Benji Durden <laughs> last night. And he said, I hope you're thinking about Houston. Um, I had some of my best races like with a six week turnaround. I'm like, well, 
mean, some of the that's got to be a pretty ever. cool message to get. Yeah, <laughs> one of the top American marathoners of all time send you a message saying, "Hope you give yourself another shot." You kind of have to at least give it some serious thought. Yeah, so I'm thinking about it. I think what you have to do. What I wanted to be clear is like I like I wrote in the essay. I prepare so much for when it gets hard in a marathon, and I think that's what allows me to surpass what I otherwise people would say I should be capable of. And so I need to, the very physically, my quads need to regroup, and very mentally, I need. I know it'll get hard, and it, what I do, what I really try to do before a marathon is I go in with no excuses. I'm just like I just systematically eliminate any excuse that I might give myself. Um, Lauren Fleshman's talked a lot about this and it's just like have an answer. And so my biggest fear would be having a ingrained excuse, um, for when I, I know it'll get hard, like a sort of a self-evident excuse. So I have to, I have to work through that as well. Well, I'm happy to chat with you about it offline, but in the meantime, (laughs) as someone who, kind of came up with you through the college ranks and has followed your journey these past few years. I'm incredibly inspired by it. I'm rooting for you. I hope you give yourself another shot, whether it's in Houston in January or maybe four years from now for the next trials. But this past hour plus has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for your work, Mario. Right. Another episode of the podcast in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. That's the easiest way to show your support. A big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Looking for a very last-minute gift for the runner on your list? Why not give them a Tracksmith gift card? They've got digital ones available for purchase at tracksmith.com. Just click on accessories in the menu bar and it's the first item that comes up on the page. You can follow them on Instagram at TracksmithRunning and do all of your shopping at TracksmithRunning.com. A big shout out as always to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show and he makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.